well, basic training or boot camp, it serves as the first part of a soldier's training. It's the soldier's first introduction to military life. Now, people come into the military from a variety of different backgrounds, and the purpose of basic training or, or boot camp is to get people to leave those various old lives behind, at least in some form or fashion, and learn to adopt a new way of life, the, the military way of life. So new soldiers, they have to learn the traditions and the, the customs and the values of whatever military they're serving in. They're taught new behaviors. They have to learn to say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. They learn to march. They learn a new way to dress. They learn the new skills that they're going to need as a soldier. They learn to adopt a new purpose. They're taught that they're now serving a, a higher purpose. Their lives are now devoted to the service and defense of their country. Well, so basic training or, or boot camp, it begins the process of getting people from a variety of backgrounds, from people from all over whatever country they're in. Well, it gets these various people from different backgrounds, and it brings them together to teach them a new way of thinking, a new way of acting. It gives them a new purpose in order to form them into one cohesive team. Well, this illustration of basic training or boot camp, I think, can help us understand the Apostle Paul's message in Colossians chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles, or you can find the text for the sermon in your bulletins. But if you remember, much of chapter 2 of Colossians, what we've been studying the past few weeks, well, focused on the believer's union with Christ, the new life that Christians have in Christ, the fact that Jesus is the, the fuel of the Christian life. Well, what does it mean that Christians have new life in Christ? What does that look like? Well, that's what Paul explains in chapter 3. Those who have been born again and united to Jesus Christ are to put off or, or put away their old ways of thinking, their old behaviors. Just like the new soldiers have to put away their former way of life. Well, so this is going to be the idea we examine in our verses for this week. But in addition, in the same way that basic training or boot camp seeks to instill a new way of life, those who have been united to Christ are to adopt a new way of life, a heavenly way of life, new thoughts and new behaviors with a new purpose to glorify God. Well, it's that idea that we're going to be mainly looking at in our verses for, for next week when we study the second half of chapter 3. But Christians are to put off the old man, to put off their earthly, their sinful existence, our verses for this week, and to put on the new adopt a new way of life, our verses for next week. And so with that in mind, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. 
In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The main idea of these verses, and therefore this sermon, is that the pattern of a gospel-shaped life is to destroy the sin in your life by setting your mind on heavenly realities. The pattern of a gospel-shaped life is to destroy the sin in your life by setting your mind on heavenly realities. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is thinking heavenly thoughts. The second is abandoning earthly practices. And then the third is considering practical realities. Thinking heavenly thoughts, abandoning earthly practices, and considering practical realities. So first, thinking heavenly thoughts. Well, C.S. Lewis, in his famous work, his famous book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of any other world, or sorry, it is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Uh, In other words, there is no such thing as being too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. I do not know if you've heard that phrase before, but if you have, discard it. Those who make the biggest impact in this world are those who set their mind on the world to come. Those who set their mind on heaven. Therefore, Paul's instruction for living out the Christian life is this. So, if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, when Paul uses the word if here, he's not really doubting whether the Colossians have new life in Christ. He's he's not doubting their faith. He's saying something like, if you have been united to Christ, which I know you have, well, then you should seek the things that are above. That'd be like the drill sergeant telling a new soldier, if you're in the army, start acting like it. That's something of what Paul is saying here. And so Paul commands these Colossian believers to seek the things above. Verse 1, to set their minds on things above. Verse 2, it's clear that Paul has heaven in mind when he says these things because he writes that we're to set our minds where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Friends, where is that? That's heaven. Christian, he is commanding you to be heavenly-minded as opposed to earthly-minded. That's the command that he's given. Be heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. So Paul wrote back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, that if you've died with Christ, if you've been freed from your bondage to sin, then why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you still submit to human traditions and commands like do not touch and do not taste? Paul was making the argument that man-made rules and regulations are of no value in putting sin to death. That's because they do not address the heart. What will help you put sin to death? Friends, it's seeking the things that are above. What exactly does that mean to seek the things that are above? In some regard, that's what we're going to be thinking about for the rest of this morning's sermon. But one pastor put it this way. To seek the things above is to have a preoccupation with eternal realities that are ours in Christ. 
preoccupation with eternal realities that are ours in Christ is to be the pattern of the believer's life. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and his purposes, plans, provisions, and power. It is also to view the things, people, and events of the world through his eyes and with an eternal perspective. In other words, it's a consideration of eternal realities that is to guide our actions here on earth. But what are those heavenly realities? What realities are we to consider? Oh, we could certainly include everything that Paul said about the Christian's union with Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. But in these first four verses of our text for this morning, Paul particularly directs your attention to two things. We're going to see more, but in these opening verses, he particularly points you in the direction of two things. One, your security in Jesus as a Christian. And two, your hope in Jesus as a Christian. Your security in Jesus and your hope in Jesus. So Paul wrote that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And friends, that is the place of honor and authority and glory. But Christian, notice where it is that Paul says your life is. Verse 3, it is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, if you are here and you are a Christian, you have died in a spiritual sense. Your earthly, sinful self has died, and you have been made alive in Jesus Christ. You have been given new life. You now have a heavenly existence. You are not physically in heaven. I can see you all here. One day you will be. But you have a heavenly existence even now. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Brothers and sisters, that means your life is safe and secure. Nothing that happens in this earthly life, nothing that happens in this earthly life, not even death, because Jesus has defeated death, can threaten your heavenly existence. Nothing in this earthly life can threaten your heavenly existence. It is hidden with Christ. It is protected by Christ. It is secure. Brothers and sisters, it's this reality that provides you hope as a Christian. Notice in verse 4 that Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, Christ is your life. Your spiritual life is now heavenly powered. You have a spirit in you. And you have the hope that when Jesus returns, you will not just have an existence hidden in heaven, but you will join him physically there in glory. So, Christian, you're to fix your mind on where you will one day fully be. Heaven. Your life is no longer primarily to be defined by your earthly existence, but your heavenly one. Therefore, you are to discard your earthly way of life and adopt a a heavenly way of life. That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 3. During your time on earth, there is something of of a hidden nature to your heavenly existence. No one can simply like look at you and see that you're a Christian. You don't have like a, a big billboard over your head that says, I'm a Christian. No, you give evidence of your heavenly existence by the way you live. By putting to death what belongs to your earthly nature and putting on the new way of life. Well, friends, I do not know if any of you saw of the report of, of Hurricane Ian that hit the United States two weeks ago. I saw that it made golf news. So I trust that at least a few of you have have seen that. 
Well, directly in the storm's path was Sanibel Island off the coast of western Florida. The storm did enormous damage to that island. It actually cut off and destroyed the only road that connected that island to the mainland. Well, the former pastor of the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi now pastors a church on Sanibel Island in Florida. In that storm, he lost most of his earthly possessions, as did many in the church. Well, in a letter he wrote to his church after the storm, he told this story about the day the storm hit. So this is his words. On Wednesday, as the storm raged, I was sitting in a mall in the city to which I had evacuated. So he left Sanibel Island, evacuated to another city. He was in a mall. Trying, he was trying to get internet. One of the stores had a TV with news coverage of the storm. Starved for information, I walked over to watch with a few others. We started talking, and I told them I was a refugee from Sanibel Island. The strangers around me stood in shock as I described what little I knew was happening on the island. The conversation ended, and I returned to my computer. A few minutes later, one of the store employees came over and said, I'm sorry, but I just have to ask, why are you so calm? You're losing everything, and yet you seem so calm. It was a funny question because I did not feel calm, yet that's what he perceived. So I started to explain, well, I'm a Christian and I pastor a church. I did not get to finish my sentence. His face lit up and he said, of course, you have God. I got it. It all makes sense. And he walked away smiling. Uh, friends, that, that pastor's calmness in the face of the storm gave evidence of his heavenly existence. He could be calm because he knew his life was hidden with Christ and God. He could suffer the loss of his earthly possessions because his life was hidden with Christ and God. Nothing could threaten his heavenly existence. His source of security, his source of hope, his source of comfort was not found in the things of this earth. It was, it was found in heaven. But friends, how can you have boldness and courage in a world that does not love God? How can you stand up for Jesus even when it might cost you? It's by reminding yourself that your life is safe with Christ in heaven. How can you patiently and joyfully endure the trials and sufferings of life? Friends, it's by reminding yourself that one day there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more tears, because when Christ returns, you will also appear with him in glory. Friends, how can you put to death what is earthly in you? That's where Paul is turning our attention next. How can you put to death what is earthly in you? Friends, it's by fixing your mind on heaven. That takes us to the second point of the sermon, abandoning earthly practices. So look again, starting in verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedience. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Well, therefore, Paul writes, because your life is hidden with Christ in God, because of your heavenly existence, you are commanded to put to death, to put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. 
like those new recruits in basic training have to put off their old way of life and put on a new way of life, you are to put off your old way of life and put on a new way of life. You are to seek to, to kill the sin in your life that belongs to your earthly nature. Friends, again, Paul just finished telling the Colossians in chapter 2 not to submit to any human commands and regulations. Friends, that is, is not because holiness in the Christian life does not matter. Paul did not say that because holiness in the Christian life is unimportant. No, it is just that man-made rules and regulations is not the way to achieve holiness. That is not where holiness comes from. We see very clearly in these verses today that holiness in the Christian life matters a great deal. Paul is commanding you to put to death the sin in your life. As the Puritan pastor John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Friends, Christians have died to sin's dominion. If you're a Christian, you are no longer a, a slave to sin. Nevertheless, sin remains powerful, and you must wage war against it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul makes it clear in this passage that sin encompasses your thoughts, your attitudes, your words, your actions. Uh, Sin sin is an all-encompassing thing. It's your actions, your inner self, it's your attitudes and your thoughts. So the first place that Paul focuses on in, in our passage is sexual sin. The list of sins that he gives in in verse 5, well, in some way, they all refer to sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is a general reference to the whole range of sexual sin. Adultery, sex before marriage, viewing of pornography, the the, the list goes on. But then Paul begins to move from, from outward behavior to your thoughts and your attitudes. He shifts his focus to your your heart, which is the root of your sinful behavior. He talks about impurity and lust. In other words, the sinful and impure thoughts of the mind. Again, recall the words of, of Jesus. Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, sin is not just something that is external. It is internal. Paul speaks of evil desire and greed. These are two ways of describing a similar idea. Sexual sin springs from the evil desire of the heart. It springs from a desire for that which is forbidden. It can be described as as greed or covetousness because sinful sexual desire is a desire for more and more. It is a desire for that which does not belong to you. Friends, not all sexual desire is wrong. But right sexual desire is confined to marriage. However, the the evil desires of our hearts so often redirect it to desire that which is forbidden. Towards lust and impurity and sexual immorality. The greed of our heart leads us to desire that which we should not have. Paul calls this type of greed and desire idolatry because it places your sinful and selfish desire over obedience to God. When you give in to sexual temptation, or any other sin, Paul just happens to be talking about that here, when you give in to sexual temptation, lust and sexual immorality, you are worshiping the God of your own sinful desire. That's what you're doing. You're not worshiping God at that moment. You're worshiping the God of your own sinful desire. 
But why does Paul focus on this particular sin here? I think it's because sexual sin is particularly opposed to your union with Christ. At a very deep level, it's to reject or to spurn your union with Christ, that which Paul has been writing about so much in Colossians. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Friends, because you were bought with a price and have been united to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit living in you, flee from sexual immorality. Put it to death. Friends, I know some of you who are here and are married, but you're living here in the UAE apart from your spouse. Friends, that's an enormously difficult situation. If you have the means of changing that situation, I would encourage you to, to do so. Not just for the temptation to sexual immorality, but I believe it's God's design that a husband and wife and a family should live together if they are able. But I know it's it's an enormously difficult situation. The temptations to sexual immorality and adultery may be strong, but flee from those things. Friends, those of you who are here and and may not be married, you may struggle with sexual desire as well. Friends, giving into that desire will not bring you any lasting satisfaction. Friends, the, the ability to feed your lustful and evil desires is more readily available than perhaps any time in human history. Thousands of pornographic images are simply a click away. But friends, flee from those things. You have been bought with a price. But how? How can you flee from these desires that seem so strong? Friends, the the battle is in the mind and the heart. You must know that the battle is is first and foremost in the mind and the heart. And and you know this if you struggle with sexual temptation. Where is the, the center of your struggle? Well, it's in your mind. You dwell on impure thoughts. You indulge the lust of your heart by continually running fantasies in your mind over and over again. You may think continually about another person. No one commits an act of sexual immorality without first dwelling on lustful thoughts. And when you do give in to those evil desires, when you do give in to that temptation, when you do think these things over and over and over again in your mind, it just adds fuel to the fire of your lustful thoughts and desires in the future. It just makes it harder to put your minds on the heavenly things in the future. And so how do you fight this sin? Well, there are practical steps you can take. Let me encourage you to confess to another brother and sister in Christ if this is something that you struggle with. Let them help hold you accountable and to encourage you towards godliness. Friends, sin loves the darkness. It thrives in the darkness. But it gets put to death when you bring it into the light. Maybe you need to get rid of the internet on your phone for a while. Maybe you need to get rid of Netflix or throw out your TV or cut off communication with another person. But even as I say those things, you must understand that outward action alone, getting rid of the the internet on your phone or Netflix, will not put to death the sin of your mind. You need your mind renewed by the Spirit. 
You need to set your mind on the things that are above. You need to stop dwelling on sexual thoughts. So Pastor John MacArthur writes this. Evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. Evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. Therefore, the battle against all sin, especially sexual sin, begins in the mind. Evil thoughts produce sinful behavior, and pure thoughts produce righteous behavior. That is why Paul counsels in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Friends, when you are tempted to dwell on sexual thoughts, open your Bible. Ask God to help you dwell on other things instead. Set your mind on the fact that Jesus died for your sin, that you have bought with a price and for a purpose, to glorify God in your body. Remind yourself that your life is hidden with Christ and God, and life with him is far more satisfying than anything that this earth can offer. Set your mind on the holiness of God. Think on what is true and right and pure and lovely. Friends, that's a description of God himself. Set your mind on the Lord. My friends, notice that there is another spiritual reality you must also consider. Look at verses 6 and 7. Because of these, these sins that Paul is describing, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. God's wrath is coming against the sins that belong to your earthly nature, like sexual immorality. And God's wrath is particularly coming on those who Paul calls the disobedient. The disobedient are those who refuse to put their sin to death. Those who continually indulge the sinful desires of their flesh. Those who worship their desires of their flesh instead of the Lord. Friends, notice that this is a description of all people. Paul tells the Colossians in verse 7 that they were once among the disobedient. They once walked in these sins or lived in these sins that Paul had described. But no longer. What changed for them? What made the difference? It's God's grace. God saved them and united them to Christ. They died to sin and they were made alive to righteousness. But friends, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, know that Christians are not those who are, are better than everyone else. That's not what we think about Christians. They're not those who are better than everyone else. No, Christians too once lived according to their earthly nature. We were just as disobedient as anyone else. I was just as sinful as anyone else. What makes someone a Christian is not their goodness. It is God's grace. What makes someone a Christian is not their goodness. It is God's grace. Christians are those who have admitted their sins, sought to turn from their sins, sought to put their sins to death, and place their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote this about those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us, Christians, and opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Friends, that verse is hard to beat for a summary of the good news of the gospel. Jesus came from heaven to earth to fully pay the debt that you owe for your sin if you will turn to him in repentance and faith. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, 
died at atoning and sacrificial death on the cross and was supernaturally raised from the dead three days later that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, God freely forgives the sin debt of anyone who repents and places their faith in Jesus Christ. Those people who do that, they no longer have to fear the coming of God's wrath because Jesus took it in their place. Their life is now hidden with Christ in God. Their heavenly existence and their life is secure. So friends, if you are here and not a Christian, let me urge you to confess your sins to the Lord today and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus alone who can rescue you from the wrath to come. Jesus alone. You can't do it in your own strength. It is Jesus alone. Paul's goal in this passage is not to give an exhaustive list of every sin. He focused on sexual immorality because of the unique way in which that sin is a, is a rejection of the believer's union with Christ. And then in verses 8 through 9, he turns his attention to your words. Now, I think Paul focuses on words because they are one of the first places that the sin of your mind and your heart will show up. Anger, wrath, and malice, well, these all refer to the attitudes of your heart that give rise to sinful speech like slander and filthy language or obscene talk. These are references to speech that is intended to harm someone else. Uh, evil speech directed at someone else. Paul also mentions lying, which is a type of speech that is intended to benefit yourself, often at the expense of others. But friends, why is it that you speak unkind words to others? Why do you tear others down behind their back instead of building them up? Why do you lie about others? Why do you gossip? Why do you scream and, and yell? But friends, it's because of the anger and the wrath and the malice of your heart that is overflowing into your words. What's going on in your heart that is producing your words? As Jesus said, it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And your words are not the fault of someone else. Your words are not the fault of someone else, no matter what they may have done to you. Your words are your responsibility. Maybe you choose to speak harshly or unkindly to someone because you are bitter or angry over something that they have said or done to you. You keep running those hurts over and over in your mind. And maybe they're just perceived hurts that you run over in your mind. You just imagine what this person might say to you or you to get together. And you run that scenario over and over in your mind and you get angry. So what do you do? Eventually, you, you lash out with an unkind word. But slander, filthy language, lying, angry words, bitter words are not to characterize Christians. Because, as Paul writes in verses 9 through 10, you have put off the old self. It has been crucified with Christ if you are a Christian. And you have put on the new. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And you are to live in light of your heavenly existence. Again, how do you, how do, you do this? It's not by taking a vow of solitude or silence that you never speak to others again. That is of no value in stopping sinful self-indulgence. That might keep you from sinful speech sometimes, but it does not put to death the anger, wrath, and malice that is living in your heart. It does not stop you from brooding on past hurts and present hurts. It does not stop you from imagining future hurts. Friends, how can you kill sin? As one pastor put it, first, by starving it. Do not feed anger or resentment. Do not cater to sexual lust or covetousness. 
First, starve it. Second, by crowding it out with positive graces. My friends, what are some of these positive graces or or heavenly truths that you might set your mind on in order to crowd out the anger and the, the malice that is residing in your heart? I'd encourage you to set your mind on the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ. How can you stop brooding on past hurts? It's reminding yourself of how much Jesus freely forgives you. And the fact that because he has forgiven you, you can also forgive others. Set your mind on the example of your Savior, who, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 23-24, Jesus, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. If you're a Christian, you've been united to Jesus, and you have his spirit in you. And you have the power to fight sin. You have the power to think heavenly thoughts. You have the power to put sin to death. You don't, but Jesus in you does. Brothers and sisters, the pattern of your new life in Christ is, as Paul writes in verse 10, that you are to be renewed in the image of your creator. The image of God that we were all created in. The image of God that was marred by our sin and is marred by our sin. It is being renewed in the image of our creator. Brothers and sisters, that is the mark of being a Christian. It's that you grow in your holiness. That you live more and more in accord with your heavenly existence. So we put sin to death by thinking heavenly thoughts. Paul calls us to abandon earthly practices. And third and, third and final, Paul calls us to consider practical realities. Now look at verse 11. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And now at first glance, it's not entirely clear what this has to do with what Paul has just written. Now why is this verse here? I believe Paul is pointing us to a practical reality of our heavenly existence. I think Paul is pointing us to a practical reality of our heavenly existence. And that practical reality is that we've all been united to one another in Christ. If you're a Christian, you've been united with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Or as Paul put it, that Christ is all and in all. Now, that's not just a practical reality. That's very much a a spiritual reality. That's a, a heavenly reality. But the practical application of that reality is that in the church, we are no longer to consider one another based on earthly realities. We're no longer to primarily consider one another based on our earthly realities, but rather heavenly ones. Friends, have you ever wondered why everyone at boot camp gets the same haircut? It all just gets like shaved off? Well, one of the reasons for this is to give a visible picture of the unity that those who are in the military are now to have with one another. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. The military wants to bring all these different people together into one unified team. What's most important now is not their various different backgrounds. It's not their different haircuts. It's not who they are and their self-expression. It's that they are part of the same team. So to illustrate this, they all get the same haircut. Praise the Lord, we don't all get the same haircut as Christians. But we are all on the same team. What was now most important about the Colossians and their existence together was not whether they were a Greek or a Jew or slave or free, but that they were Christians, that they were united in Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, the same thing is, is true of you. What is most important about you, what is most important about our existence together as a church, is not whether you are a man or a woman. It's not whether you are Filipino or Indian or South African or Kenyan or Ugandan or American. Or we could just keep going down the list. Your central identity is that you are now a Christian. This does not mean our differences and distinctions just disappear when we become Christians. It doesn't mean that your culture and heritage are no longer important. When you're saved, you remain a man or a woman. You are still Ugandan or Nigerian. It's just that your identity in Christ is now to be primary. What is to be primary in your mind when you think of and interact with other members of the church is that you are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Friends, one of the things that can make unity difficult in the church, one of the things that can, that can tempt us to sin against one another is our differences from one another. We do not all look the same. We do not all talk the same. And more importantly, we do not all think the same or, or act the same. Those differences can tempt us to sin against one another. We can be tempted to take offense when none was intended because someone isn't used to our cultural customs. We can be tempted to show favoritism to those who come from the same place that, that we do. And recently, I, I found a group of people that regularly play basketball together here in Fujera. I enjoy playing basketball, so I was very excited about this. I've gone to play with them a couple times now, and, and it's been fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. But I don't feel like I fully belong when I go play basketball. And that's because of like the 20 or 30 people there. I am the only non-Filipino in the group. Now, we're loosely united because of our enjoyment of basketball, but their unity as Filipinos is much stronger than our unity over the game of basketball. So I feel a bit out of place. Now, friends, the church is not supposed to be that way because we have a much deeper unity than the enjoyment of basketball. We have been united to Jesus Christ, and there is no deeper unity than that. It trumps our national identity. It trumps our preferences. It trumps our cultures. So this verse, verse 11 here, really serves as something of a transition. It's like a hinge verse connecting the first ten verses in Colossians to what is going to follow in what we study next week. In the remainder of chapter 3, Paul turns much of his attention to our corporate life together as a church. We're going to be thinking about next week, how are we to live out this identity, this, this, new, this new heavenly existence that we have with one another. Brothers and sisters, before we get there next week, I just want to say that I'm encouraged by you because I see you trying to live this reality out. And just look around. It doesn't take long to figure out that there are a lot of differences between us. We have a number of differences. But I'm always encouraged when I see you welcome a new visitor who is not like you. Or talk to someone or pray for someone who is not from your country. I often see your love for one another, and I, I pray that it only grows stronger. Friends, when you're tempted to, to spend time only with the people most like you from an earthly perspective, you need to remind yourself of the unity you share with all Christians, all members of the church in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is a heavy sermon. We've thought a lot about the sin of our earthly nature. But as we thought about that, we, we see Paul commanding us to put those sins to death. But he's doing that with a guaranteed hope of success for those who are in Christ because we have been given his spirit. 
we can put to death the sins of the flesh. We have been united to Christ. These are sins that you're struggling with this morning. Confess them and be encouraged that if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. We still have to work to put sin to death. You don't have to live this earthly existence in despair because your life is hidden with Christ and God. Brothers and sisters, you fight sin by setting your mind on the things above, your heavenly existence. And it is this same reality that helps you build unity with one another. If you're a Christian, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Like that new military recruit, that means you're to put off your old earthly sinful life and you're to put on new ways of of acting and thinking. Christian, you have been given a, a new purpose, a glorious purpose, and that is to live for the glory of God. Therefore, the pattern of a gospel-shaped life is to destroy the sin in your life by setting your mind on heavenly realities. I'm going to think a little bit more about that next week, but let's pray.